some people call a kid at risk, but it's not a kid at risk, it's a kid that lacks resources. You don't have to have a PhD to be an advocate, to serve, to be committed to quality of life efforts and issues. What are we doing on the back end to disrupt the root causes and the systems that continue to push kids in harm's way? Welcome to American Diagnosis, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This season, we're looking at gun violence in America. Black and Latino communities in the United States are the most impacted by gun violence. But when it comes to the national debate about gun safety or gun violence prevention, their efforts are largely overlooked. If this is the number one and number two cause of death for males, black males, 55 and under, like, why isn't anybody looking at all of this as a public health issue? In the last couple episodes, we've been talking about the state of the gun violence prevention movement and how it's gotten new energy and how for many it feels like something new. But people in these communities have been fighting gun violence in their neighborhoods for decades. It baffles me. I've been working on these issues since 1989. Despite this fact, they're often left out of the discussion when it comes to gun violence prevention. But that doesn't mean communities of color haven't been taking action. Our big goal is to reduce the homicide rate of young black men and boys by 50% by the year 2025. In today's episode, we'll hear from community leaders across the country who've been fighting to make their neighborhoods safer and why we'll never fix this health crisis without them. This week on American Diagnosis, the hidden work of gun violence prevention in communities of color. Several episodes ago, we talked about a program called Ceasefire. It began as a citywide effort in Boston to reimagine gun violence prevention in the 1990s. It was wildly successful. Violent crime plummeted by almost 80%. So I want to introduce you to someone who was involved in that project, but who we didn't yet get a chance to meet. I'm Reverend Jeffrey Brown. I am currently an associate pastor at the 12th Baptist Church in the Roxbury section of Boston. We'll talk more about Reverend Brown's work with Ceasefire in a minute. But first, let's go back a bit. Reverend Brown moved around a lot as a kid. His mother, Geraldine, was always his rock, a pillar of strength in his family. Well, my mother was very loving. She was the disciplinarian, of course, she was a single parent. And so she raised, you know, three boys. Geraldine had a big influence on her son's religious and political beliefs. Making sure that we were aware of who we were as young African-American men was really important for my mother. My mother went to school at North Carolina A&T College, and she was there at the same time that Jesse Jackson was there. So she was down in North Carolina with the hundreds of other students who were protesting, you know, during that time. And that spirit she carried into her children. Boston is a very different city today than it was when Reverend Brown first started working there. Back then, he was a young minister in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He'd graduated from seminary just a few years before. But his time at the seminary didn't prepare him for what he saw in the streets. 
you had all this violence that was happening and all these guns that were showing up and these young people grabbing these guns and shooting one another. This was not the world he grew up in. So when I was growing up in the 70s, and this is like the mid to late 70s, gun violence was a rarity. Reverend Brown was young, just 25, but kids not much younger than him were shooting each other. One night in January 1990, Reverend Brown got a call. It was the police. They said there's been a murder near the church and you need to come. Two young men had been shot and killed near his church. Jesse McKee and Rigoberto Carrion. And I'd asked the officers, I said, well, you know, exactly what, what happened. I mean, I mean, how did this occur? These two young men were coming home, and Jesse had, I believe, an after-school job. And met up with a group of youth and then started having a conversation with them. And according to those who told me the story, they started to rob Jesse of the jacket that he had just bought. Both he and Rigoberto uh, started to fight uh, the youth, and they killed them both. But what was unique about Jesse was that he started to run away from the scene, even though he was mortally wounded. He was running up the street in the direction of the church, and he died some 100, 150 yards away from the church. And it was that fact that just stayed with me. Reverend Brown met with the boys' mothers. They prayed. There was a march. And I remember that March, it was freezing cold outside. I believe it was zero degrees, maybe a little below zero when we did this march. But we marched from City Hall right to the housing projects. And then uh, they asked me to to speak and, and, and to have prayer, and I did that. And I remember walking away from that and thinking to myself, we, we've got to do much more than that. Reverend Brown was presiding over more and more funerals for young people, 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds. Remember, Reverend Brown was in his 20s then, not much older than the victims. This all came to a head one day at the Morning Star Baptist Church in Boston, when a funeral was interrupted by violence. A number of gang members who were chasing a young man into the church. Pastor Lily had to throw himself onto the young man in order to get them to stop stabbing him. And they were doing all that in front of the altar, in front of the casket. They almost killed him. The young man actually did not die, but he was in really bad shape. There were more meetings, debates about big structural changes, housing, education, health care. All of those were important issues, but what we were saying was that, you know, look, there are guns out on the street, that's violent, and it's very clear that the police we're not going to be able to arrest everybody to eliminate the violence. And so we started to walk in the four-corner section of Dorchester. And at that time, it was the most dangerous neighborhood in the city. And we were walking out there from 10 o'clock at night to, to at least 1, 2 in the morning, just going out, finding youth, making connections, trying to build relationships. I can't say that it was always a joy to be out there on the street sometimes. It, it really did feel dangerous. 
But it became clear that what we were doing was actually a key, finding a way forward in the midst of all of this violence. These night walks would eventually be folded into a larger citywide effort called ceasefire. Violent crime fell by 79% during an eight-year period. But what gets cut out of that narrative is the community effort of the many, many, many people who put their shoulders to the plow and pushed to, you know, eliminate violence and to make it better. It's sort of like in the same way the civil rights movement. I mean, my mother was a part of the marches and the sit-ins, but if I wouldn't have told you, you would have never heard her name. There are so many folks in Boston who were a part of eliminating and reducing violence in the community, but you'll never hear about them because they're the community mothers. They're the uncles who cared about groups of young people to get them out of the community every now and then and give them different experiences so they could see that the world was larger than the six blocks that they lived in. It's those folks who made a difference. And I always say that whatever you do in terms of criminal justice reform and violence prevention, you need to see it as a moment of community empowerment. You can't come in with a community solution and not have the community involved in it and say that this is good for the community. The community has to own it themselves. The community has to embrace it. And that's the only way that you'll get real reform is when that happens. Programs like Ceasefire and other violence interruption programs can't succeed without the community's support. But there's a perception that clouds participation. It has a lot to do with how we talk about violence in African-American communities in the United States. One day, for example, Reverend Brown got invited by the New York Times to participate in a panel about gun violence. There were families from the Sandy Hook massacre, survivors of mass shootings, and gun rights advocates, all talking about guns in America. But then one of us who've had these inner-city programs on anti-violence spoke up and said, we're going back and forth about the NRA and all of this, but I got people who bringing in guns all the time in inner cities and we're dealing with this and we need help with this. And, you know, it was almost like an afterthought for many of the folks who were there. Reverend Brown says there's a prevailing wisdom that inner city gun violence is different from the gun violence the rest of America faces. Yeah, there is this assumption that what people experience in the inner cities is somehow a result of their own choices, or it's their fault. They have no idea or no understanding of how inner cities have ended up the way that they are, that it's not the fault of the community, but it's the way things have been structured over years. When you talk about decades of failed housing policies and redlining and all of that, And then when you talk about poor educational institutions and how schools in the inner cities are routinely underfunded, if you really want to understand gun violence, how it affects the human spirit, talk to folks who live in the inner cities who deal with it every day.
Meet A.U. Hogan. A.U. has been working in gun violence prevention in the South Jamaica neighborhood of Queens, New York, since the early 2000s. The goal right now is to stop people from shooting each other. We go after people who either are potential shooters or people who potentially can be shot. A.U. grew up in this same neighborhood, but he says it's changed a lot since then. I grew up in a town where there was mothers and fathers at home. It was an area that people were looking for upward mobility. People went to work. People got along. A.U. says that after crack cocaine hit his neighborhood, things got really bad. My closest friends, they became millionaires for maybe three years, and the rest were prosecuted. Some of them lost their lives. He said there could be as many as 200 killings a year. And he brought up an interesting point. You can kill 100 people in the hood. And they're not going to consider that as a mass shooting. Why don't we call these killings mass shootings? That there was five people shot on my block, and there was five people shot on your block, we have to frame it the same way. Media looks at it just a bunch of people of color shooting each other. But when a white person shoots 11 people, 12 people, it's a mass shooting. Remember the mass shooting in Gilroy, California last July? 21 people were shot. Only a day before, 13 people were shot on a playground in Brownsville, a neighborhood in East Brooklyn in New York City, which has struggled with gun violence for years. But the Brownsville shooting wasn't called a mass shooting. It wasn't talked about in the same way. There's a different kind of resource that comes behind a mass shooting. There's a different standard for gun violence in black versus white neighborhoods. The common framing is black-on-black crime. When I see the media make a statement about black-on-black crime, it reminds me of how far we have come, but how far we have to go. This is Kayla Hicks. She's the director of African American and Community Outreach for the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. I wanted to help and change the narrative and make sure that people were focusing on this is a public health narrative and not just as, oh, those Black people are shooting everything up and just having that ignorant conversation that we hear nationally, that it's us, it's our fault. Kayla sees the root of a lot of gun violence in the communities where she works as a question of resources. These communities can get a gun quicker than they can get a job, quicker than they can get social services, health care, diploma. Everything is difficult to get but a gun. It's hard for Kayla to look at moments in history, like the crack cocaine epidemic, and now the opioid crisis, and not see a double standard. So Kayla is focused on building leadership to demand those resources, empowering local communities to have a greater voice in policy discussions about gun violence. What I do for the the Educational Fund to Stop Gun Violence is to make sure that communities of color that are mostly impacted have a seat at the table and are able to contribute to the policy and legislative conversation. What we developed is a program called Engaging Impact Communities, and that program specifically recognizes that we have to engage communities of color in the work to reduce and prevent death by gun violence. One of the programs Kayla oversees is called Education in Action. That's where she met a woman named Margaret Eady. Her son was murdered, and when I met her, she was in a space of where she just didn't want to live anymore. But Margaret found a way out of that dark place through advocacy. We 
began to talk more about what policy and legislation meant, what elected officials' roles were, and what the power of people could do. And she began to start to dig and research. And before you knew it, she knew more laws and bills than I did. She could track legislation better than me. She went from the corners of some of the hardest and most impacted communities to the halls of Congress where she sat in protest and got arrested. And we, we were happy to bail her out because she understood from the corner to Congress is a conversation that could literally change lives. And when people in these neighborhoods are successful in beating back gun violence, there can be other problems. Here's Reverend Jeffrey Brown again. Places like Oakland, for example, they would see this reduction in violence. And then this phenomenon would occur where developers would come into the community. But then the folks who were pushed out would not be able to afford to get back in. And a lot of the folks who do the work are community residents who you never really hear about, but they work very hard in order to make their community better only for them to be pushed out of the community as so-called gentrification would happen. So Reverend Brown founded an organization called My City and Peace. It works with developers to help people stay in their neighborhoods after they've helped make it a better place to live. And so that organization works with developers to find ways to keep the anchor residents of a community embedded within their community as the community improves so that they could reap the benefits of the peace that they've worked so hard to create. This is a great example of the kinds of blind spots people have around gun violence in neighborhoods of color. You might not see an obvious connection between affordable housing and gun violence prevention, but that's why it's so important to have voices from these communities represented at the table. Education and employment are also at the root of gun violence. These are core issues for organizers like Anthony Smith. He's the executive director of a program called Cities United. Cities United has big goals. Cities United is trying to achieve a world where all of our young people grow up in communities that are safe, healthy, and hopeful. Our big goal is to reduce the homicide rate of young black men and boys by 50% by the year 2025. Anthony was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. The city roughly divides on east-west lines. White folks on the east side, black folks on the west. You can see the differences, right? If you think about the different zip codes, there's a 7 to 11 year life expectancy difference. And when you think about the income, you think about access to ownership of uh, housing, to cars and transportation, those neighborhoods, the east and the west, uh, are very different. And Anthony saw both sides. He grew up in West Louisville, where his mom had family. But when he was a teenager, they moved across town. Better opportunities, right? I think mom wanted us at a better school. Mom wanted to be in a, I'm putting quotes, a safe neighborhood. And just the American dream, right? You always want to move up. And I think that's part of the issue that we're also dealing with is that a lot of folks who could be helpful to the communities have moved out of the communities just because they had the opportunity to. So I think it's both ways. So I think mom remarried, saw an opportunity and took it. But Anthony struggled with the move. I dropped out of school in the 12th grade. Uh, and I dropped out because I was, one, very disconnected from school from the 6th grade through the 12th. And by the time I got to the 12th grade, I didn't have enough credits to get anything done. I would have been there probably another three years. 
Anthony had jobs since he was 16. When he dropped out of school, he got a job at Chuck E. Cheese. He worked his way up to assistant manager. But there was one problem. You had to have a GED or a high school diploma, so I went back and got my GED at like 21. That set Anthony on his path to becoming director of the mayor's office for safe and healthy neighborhoods in Louisville and eventually Cities United. A big part of my purpose is to make sure kids who felt disconnected or not connected to schools had some of the same opportunities I had to then move forward, right? Because I don't think, I think kids always need a second, third, fourth, and fifth chance, but they also need people to help point them in their way. There was one more story Reverend Brown told me. I read that you once tried to rap a sermon. What did that sound like and how did that go over? Um, I did. This was during, you, you have to understand when I was, when I tried this rap sermon, it was during a time that, you know, rap was becoming really prominent. And so I tried to do this rap sermon. Now, I'll be honest with you, when I did it, I, I, I had some confidence. I mean, you know, I had words that rhymed and it just sounded good to me. At the end of the service, I had a young man wait until everybody left the church so that he could talk to me. And so he walked up to me and he literally says, a rap sermon, I'll rap. And I said, I looked at him and I was like, yeah, yeah. I said, what you think about that? He just looked at me and said, don't do it again, Rev. And I was like, okay. <laughs> but there is a part of that story that I, that I don't usually tell. And because a young person said to me afterwards, he says, don't, don't, don't do it again, Rev. He says, if you want somebody to rap in your sermon, ask me to do it and I'll get up and I'll do it. For me, it was a lesson that, you know, it's not something that I can do alone, but I, I can do it with someone and, and together we can make a difference. I think this story sums up a lot of what we've been talking about this episode. You need buy-in from the community if you want your message to resonate. That's why it's so important for more voices like those we've heard this episode to be involved in the solutions to gun violence. Over the last couple episodes, we've talked about some of the new constituencies who've joined the gun violence prevention movement. Moms and kids, veterans, and healthcare providers. They each have their reasons, much of which has to do with the toll they've seen gun violence take on their communities. But for many, this has been a relatively new development. There are communities who've been living with violence for years. And now that there's a table to gather around and take action on gun violence, it's important that they aren't crowded out and have a seat at the table. I think the role of leaders of color and young people of color, young leaders of color, is crucial in dealing with the issues around gun violence. The day-to-day -day experience of dealing with gun violence is really crucial for any larger effort to try to understand what we need to do as a society around gun violence. There's a young man who was one of the survivors of the Parkland shooting in Florida. His name is David Hogg. 
You know, I met with David in, I believe it was in September of last year. He's a student now at, at Harvard. And he reached out to me because if you really want to understand gun violence, you really need to understand the inner city context. So he reached out to me and said, you know, I'm, 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 I need to learn. I'm trying to educate myself. In the next and final episode of this season on gun violence, we'll hear from David Hogg and Tia Amoya Roberts, two survivors of the Parkland shooting, about where we go from here. That's next time on American Diagnosis. American Diagnosis is brought to you by Just Human Productions. Today's episode was produced by Zach Dyer and me. Our theme music is by Alan Best. Additional music by the Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. You can learn more about this podcast, how to engage with us on social media, and how to support the podcast at americandiagnosis.fm. That's americandiagnosis.fm. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is American Diagnosis. 